0: Get my slides out here. If you were here for our last series, uh, we talked a lot about our statement of faith. It was a lot of information. It was a lot of truth. Uh, that's what our goal was, was to communicate uh, truth. It was what we believe. Uh, hopefully you resonated with a lot of that, um, hopefully all of it. Uh, as we went through the particulars of our statement of faith, as we talked about those things which are foundational to believers, uh, that you resonated with that. But there was a a lot of truth, and as you can see from our graphic uh, and from your bulletin, the uh, topic of this next series is truth and love together. So how do we wrap those together? How do we not just focus on information? Uh, Some of us can get Uh, a little too caught up in information. I I like to learn. I like to study, but it can be a little too Um, too much about knowledge for me at times. I have to remember it's truth and love together. Um, Some are on the flip side of that. They'd rather love, and the information's not nearly as important, and uh, sometimes they get themselves into trouble because they're too caring and too kind, and um, they forget about truth, and that sometimes we have to speak truth to people. Um, And so in this series, we're going to be talking a lot about truth and love together. Uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are excellent books and that's what we'll be doing is going through them and talking john spends a lot of time talking about uh, how truth and love work together uh, in our walk with the lord so throughout the entire series i'd like us to wrestle with uh, one big question which is how much of what i know is being lived out regularly through the love of christ in my life how much is just knowledge because it's one thing to know it. Uh, when I was uh, a personal trainer at one point in my life, uh, I knew a lot of stuff. I was, even, I was a nutritionist and a personal trainer, and I was all about that. I loved it. I loved learning about this stuff. I loved learning how the body works and, and nutrition and what you can do, how, how many uh, medicines we take instead of just eating the right way and doing the right things. Uh, and it really, uh, really got into a lot of that stuff and I still ate at McDonald's sometimes, and KFC, and I still did the wrong things. So just knowing the information doesn't do a lot. When you begin to use the information and when you, when you begin, begin to live it out, that's way better. Just having the, the knowledge in your head uh, isn't very helpful. I've, I've used the, the terminology or the analogy before, uh, or the old saying, that you know, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Uh, that's knowledge applied. That's what wisdom is, knowledge applied. And so that's what we're hoping to do is to take knowledge and apply it through this series into uh, our our truth and love together series. But like we normally do when we're going to go through a book of the Bible, Uh, I want to pause before we dive in and talk about a little bit of the basics. Uh, If you're not in the regular habit of this, uh, one of the things we do is we read through the Bible every year together. Uh, If you're ever interested, just let us know. If you have the app, you can just go to the menu on the app and you can join us on the Bible study plan. You can do your own Bible study plan. There's tons of them out there. They're very easy to find. I encourage you to do that. Uh, But... We go through one every year, and and I hope you're in the regular habit of when you start a new book, you just very briefly go back and you look at a little bit of the information of the book, the the background. uh, There's a few things I encourage you to always look at and learn about the books of the Bible. Uh, One would be who the author is. It's important to know who wrote this book. Another would be the date. When was the book written? That's important. Uh, For some of us, I think two years ago, we read through the book chronologically, and some of us were uh, a little bit surprised to find out that one of the first books, that, as, as far as we know, that was ever written was Job. Yeah, most people are like, Genesis. Uh, Job might, might have been the first one penned. So uh, knowing when it was written is important. Occasion, uh, now people usually get occasion and purpose uh, mixed up. Occasion is what is going on. In, in that time frame. What is happening? What is the scene uh, of, of when this book is written? What's happening in the culture? What's happening in the church? What's happening in the, in the people that both the, the author and the people he's writing to? What's going on? That's what the occasion is. The purpose is the why. So the occasion is what, and the purpose is why. Why was the book written? It's important to know when you're reading a book of the Bible, why was it initially written? What was the purpose of this book? If you know uh, this information about the epistles, you'll know that the occasion for a lot of the epistles is the false, there's false teaching rampant through the church. um, All through, as soon as Christianity has begun, false teaching began as well. And so that's uh, the occasion of a lot of it. So I want to just pause real quick. We're going to answer these questions about uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then we're going to dive into our series this morning. So the author. The first uh, place to look, obviously, for the information about authorship of a book would be in the book itself. Uh, Though all three books bear the name of John, you'll notice if you've read through them, which I'd encourage you to do. uh, One of the things I want us to do when we're going through books of the Bible like the way we, we will be is we 're going to try to cover about a chapter every Sunday, and so for next sunday i 'd encourage you read First John chapter Two every day this week uh, it 's a little bit longer than chapter one, but i 'd encourage you read through it every day, take you uh, just a few minutes and familiarize yourself with what 's happening. Give the Holy Spirit time. For, your, for, your, for you to kind of marinate in that chapter. Allow him to point things out to you and bring things to your focus. Then we, when we talk about it next Sunday, it'll have so much more impact because it won't be the first time you've read that portion of scripture. You'll have read it seven times already at least. Um, so if you've read through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you'll notice that though they're called 1st John, 2nd John, and 3rd John, none of them have John's name in them. Uh, you can't find his name in any of those uh, books. First John has no indication whatsoever of who wrote it at all. There is absolutely no introduction, there's nobody, there's nothing in it that says who the author is. Second and third John have the elder in the introduction, written by the elder it talks about. Historically, many believe that the author of all three of these letters though is the apostle John, not Jesus' brother, but the apostle John. Uh, and they also believe that John wrote the fourth gospel. We know the gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So the, the supposed, uh, they suppose the same author of that fourth gospel is the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So uh, there's obviously arguments against it, but if you're nerdy like me and you want to do your own research, by all means, uh, I'd encourage you to dive into that and, and come up to your own conclusion uh, as to who wrote these books. So, uh the date uh that these were written all three of these letters uh appear to have been written uh in the late first uh, uh first century AD uh so they're Christianity has been around for a few decades. It's not This isn't one of the early ones that's written shortly after Christ ascends, but so late in the first century. Uh, the occasion, first century church, like I already mentioned, deals with a lot of false teaching. In First John 2.26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So uh, the deceitful work of the enemy started the second the church began the enemy started to fight against it and so he sends these false teachers in so this is what's happening in the time uh, Christianity, like I said, has been around for a couple decades and so the enemies had time to begin to craft different arguments and, and whether it, some, of the, some of the epistles that are arguing about how uh, the law isn't important, some of them arguing against the pagan certain pagan uh, ideas that are seeping into the church, certain things that uh, belief systems that people are trying to pass off as christian they're trying to mix christianity and judaism trying to mix christianity and and paganism and all these things so that's the scene that is around these letters we don't know specifically the group of people that this was written to so uh, normally we would also talk about the audience the initial the original audience of the letter we don't have great clarity on the original audiences of these letters um but we can tell obviously they're written to churches. They're written to Christians, um, and so we know that. And so, what's the purpose? What was First, Second, and Third John? Why was it written um, specifically? First John, why? What was the purpose behind it? Well, John actually states his purpose three times throughout First John. He says in uh, Chapter One, Verse Four, to make our joy complete. Second, uh, Chapter Verse One, he says, "So you will not sin." And in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, So you may know you have eternal life. Three main purposes of 1 John, to make your joy complete so you won't sin, and that you may know you have eternal life. I think there are some pretty good purposes to writing a letter, pretty good reasons to pen a letter to a group of people. Uh, and so that's the ba- background of information, and so I want to dive in now to 1 John chapter 1 this morning. The opening to 1 John is notable in that uh, there are only two books in the entire New Testament which open without any salutation or personal reference. Does Anybody want to take a guess at the only other book in the New Testament that has absolutely no personal salutation? It's a hint. Nobody knows who wrote it. I heard it. There we go, Hebrews. It's the only other, so there's a little information. If you, if you fall asleep after this, you know now, 1 John and Hebrews, all right? The only two books that have no actual salutation in the beginning. If you read 1 John, it just kicks right off. He just dives right into uh, the message there. So let's do that. Let's dive right in. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's an interesting way to start a letter. Uh, if, if you're an English person, uh, I tend to be a little bit of a grammar Nazi myself. Um, these are some of the verses that those who study Greek and know Greek and, and get into that stuff, um, they have a lot of problem with because it doesn't really fit. It's really not, very, not good grammar at the beginning of 1 John here because... We read it and we break it up when we translate it into different sentences and stuff like that, but basically verses 1, I think all the way through 4 is one sentence uh, in the Greek and the verb, the the entire point of it isn't even introduced to the third. So it's a bit of a mess um, without getting too much into it because I don't know it, uh, so that's why we're not going to get too much into the Greek um, because I don't know Greek, Uh, but in my studies... uh, it makes it very clear. This whole thing is a mess. Like, this whole first sentence is a mess. Um, but there's a reason behind it. Um, sometimes when we use poor grammar, if you've ever seen, sometimes, like, uh, businesses will use a slogan that uses really bad grammar or something. Why? Because it catches your attention. It, it makes a point, uh, and it gets people to, to pause. When when it, you see something that doesn't make sense, sometimes you have to read it a couple times to actually understand what's going on. And so um, that's a little bit of what's happening here. It's written in a very uh, different way, but it's purposeful in the way that it's written. The first point that John is making is the preexistence of Christ. He's making it very clear. He's talking about Jesus and he's talking about a pre existent Christ. Now, this would be important if you understand that there were false teachings happening that were denying that the Jesus that they saw, that walked among them, there would still be people on the earth that had seen Jesus with their eyes, um, that that same Jesus was the pre existent God. And so he's making that clear in the beginning here. Uh, John is pointing to the same Jesus that they saw and heard and touched. That that Jesus is the God from the very beginning. The author is also making a clear point about Jesus coming to the earth and the significance of that event. That uh, there would start to be at this time, late first century, you're going to get people who are in their 20s and 30s who never saw Jesus. They didn't know him. You could have people as old as 50, 60 years old who were born after Jesus ascended. And so you now have a large portion of people that it doesn't take very long for them to say, did Jesus really, was he really here? I mean, think about what was the, what was the first thing the enemy ever did in our Bibles that we know about? What was the first challenge he put to Adam and Eve? Did God really say that? Was that really what he said? Was Jesus really on the earth? And so that's part of, again, the occasion of what John is writing toward and what's happening. Uh, John addresses, it's pretty interesting, what happens through our three, what they, what they knew as like the higher senses, sight, hearing, and touch. That's how he addresses it. In the Old Testament, and if you understand this, it's, it's again, brilliant. God wrote this, obviously, through John. But in the Old Testament, Prophets had heard God speak. And so the hearing part is not new. Hearing God, uh, having God speak to man, that's not a new concept. But seeing God, now that was a bit more rare. That was uh, only through rare manifestations in the Old Testament, like what we would call Christophanies. Uh, These are moments where they believe Jesus showed up uh, in like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're walking through the fire and Nebuchadnezzar says, I see someone, I see a fourth man and he looks like the son of God. First off, Nebuchadnezzar was a knucklehead. So how would he know what Jesus looked like? Of anybody, how would he know? Maybe a prophet would get it, but not Nebuchadnezzar. But there was a clarity there, divine clarity. He sees what many people would argue is Jesus walking in the fire with them. So it was rare that God was seen, but it did happen. But being able to touch God, that was a new experience. That was a whole new thing. That was a, a strictly New Testament concept for them the word used here for touch also it doesn't just mean momentary contact it doesn't just mean like a like a brushing that's not what this this word uh that they use for touch is the used uh, the word used here means it's more accurately defined as examining closely to pick up to touch to 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 really handle something in a way that examines it and 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 searches out what it's for and its purpose and all of that so that's that word touch it's not just a momentary contact but an in-depth searching that's what they had the opportunity with jesus john as an apostle would have touched jesus he would have spent time with him they would have uh, been amongst you know i have only ever traveled with people you know periodically and not for long periods of time i can't even think about traveling even just with 11 other guys and traveling around walking everywhere and in the complaining that could happen and the whining and the arguing and i think uh if you've watched the chosen, man, i think they do a great job of really depicting what it might have been like for that group of people. Some i've heard some people say like i feel like it's like super negative. Like i don't like the second season of chosen because it's like kind of really negative and there's a lot of, kind of arguing. I'm like, man, that's probably way more accurate than anything you've ever seen about how that was what lo- what it would have been like walking around with the disciples and Jesus. But they got to see him in that context. And so John's making it clear like this. I'm not just talking about a God that we've heard about, um, that a few people have seen. I'm talking about the God that we touched, that we spent time with. The last two verses of what we just read also clarify the purpose behind the letter, so we may have fellowship together and so our joy may be complete. As we go through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I want you to ask yourself, how is my fellowship with other believers? I think one of the uh, things that has occurred in Christianity over the last few decades is it's become a a very individualistic uh, concept. I think our culture alone has been has pushed that idea that it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about your family. You need to worry about you. You need to be concerned about yourself, and that's all that really matters. And so we have kind of taken that into our Christianity. Like all, it only, what am I going to get from this? That's the only benefit we think about. Well. When we consider, should I go to church today or not, it's like, well, do I want to? Is it gonna benefit me to be there? Or can I just sit home? And we, we tend to just kind of think about ourselves. It becomes a, a kind of a selfish thing. But to think about how is my fellowship? with believers? Do I have men or women in the church that I regularly meet with, whether it's out, you know, whether it's through a women's, like alliance women or something like the men's uh, breakfast or, you know, however it is, are we gathering regularly? And not just in formal events, but are we living life together? That's fellowship. It's not showing up for the potluck when we have it. That has fellowship in it. But if that's all we do is attend, attend church and maybe a potluck from you know here and there, we don't have fellowship with the family. And what can happen, especially in smaller towns like ours, is uh, people tend to congregate into their clans, into their cliques, and it can be really hard to uh, get into those uh, little cliques. And so we must be focused on fellowship. I mean, that's the whole purpose John's writing this letter is, so that they they would have fellowship. Together, and then the second question I'd encourage you to wrestle with is: My joy being made complete, or am I just taking that little bit of joy I had from salvation and trying to live off of that for the rest of my life? Or am I allowing God to interact with me? Am I allowing God to continually transform me and change me? And am I, am I engaging with Him at all times? So one of the things Jack and I we we really like going to weekend to remember. I know who's gone to weekend to remember here. Handful of you have, I know. Yeah, Uh, it's awesome. Uh, We're going to, I've already talked to a few of you about doing, we're going to have to do an announcement uh, and we're going to have some video testimony of it because I think it's fantastic if you're married. Uh, It's an awesome thing to go to. Uh, But one of the things uh, I know that we both walked away from our last weekend to remember was that, was the reality that in a marriage, you are always moving either toward oneness or toward isolation, Every decision you make as a couple, every decision you make as a person when you're married moves you either toward oneness or toward isolation. There is no middle ground decision. It's not like you can make a decision that doesn't affect your oneness uh, in any way. Every decision that you make will move you toward oneness or isolation also in the body of Christ. Your decision to attend this event, or your decision to talk, uh, when you're having a tough time throughout the week and you think, maybe I should call someone, and you decide not to, or you decide to, every decision we make moves us toward oneness or isolation in the body of Christ. And for some of us, we make far too many decisions that lead us toward isolation in the body of Christ. And, and, and there's a reason Man, the enemy was all over that because, and I've said this to you guys a thousand times, I I truly believe one of the greatest powers the church has is unity. And almost every church I've ever been a part of has been robbed of that power because we just don't focus on it enough. We don't put enough time and energy and attention into the unity of the body. And man, when it is there, the power that a body, it does, you don't have to be a thousand member church. You don't have to be a, a large financially giving church. Just having the unity together toward the kingdom of God. Man, there's power in that. So did the decisions that you made this week, did they move you toward fellowship and joy of oneness with the body of Christ or toward isolation? I can't answer that for you, only you can John continues in his letter in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John's making it clear to his audience. This isn't something that he came up with on his own. This isn't John's idea. This is the gospel, the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we heard from him, from Jesus himself. This is his message and that is that God is light. And there's no darkness whatsoever in Christ. What does every plant need to grow? Light. I'm not very good at this. If you'll notice, if you're ever in our house, you will see no plants. The ones outside, obviously haven't gotten enough light because they're all dead. Uh, there were some nice shrubbery and there were some nice like things around our house before we moved in, but since then... I don't know what happened, um, because they're all dead. But we're only kidding ourselves if we think that we can grow outside of relationship with the light, outside of relationship with God, that, that we can just focus on that for two hours on a Sunday morning and that that's enough. That's not enough. We need to be in the light if we want to grow, and and many of us will experience this. We'll we'll get focused on our own kingdom. We'll get focused on our own life. We'll we'll hit uh, a time of of anxiety or stress, and we'll turn to God and wonder, like, man, why do you seem so distant from me? Why is this so difficult? I love you, God, and it's like, man, you've not been nourished. You've not been fed. You're, you're withered down to almost nothing. No wonder that you have very little spiritual strength and fortitude to make it through this crisis. Next verse, verse 6. says, If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is something I believe that many Christians just don't fully understand. There are a lot of people who go to church, sing the songs, talk the talk, speak the lingo, but they walk in darkness. Their lives are, 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 are no different than the lives of the world other than where they spend their Sunday mornings. And that's becoming more and more true. I, I think uh, when you look, anytime I look at Christian research, and it's like, well, you know, this is true of Christians in this time. Whenever they take polls, I'm like, man, information is never accurate. Because there's so many people who live this way, who go to church and think, well, because I attend church eh, once a month or once every other couple months, I'm a part of a church. I'm a Christian. But they walk in darkness. They don't walk in the light. Their lives don't look any different. If someone were to examine their life, it would be like, well, I mean, yeah, there are times when you spend a Sunday morning at church. But other than that, I mean, there's no evidence of the reality that you follow God. So I think, again, another question we're left with is do we practice the truth? Not do we talk about it, do we acknowledge it, do we believe it's true, do we practice it? Again, going back to my uh, life before when I was a trainer and a nutritionist, uh, I think it would be an important question, if any of you have a personal trainer or nutritionist, ask them, do you just know this or do you practice it? Because, man, it makes a difference when you've walked the walk. Uh, Whenever you're going through something tough, do you want somebody who read about your problem in a book or somebody who has actually walked through that valley? And gotten to the other side, whether it's losing uh, a loved one or going through like a hardship or uh, a divorce or something crazy like that. Do you want somebody who just read about like how you feel or what you should do in a book or somebody who went through that? And the, the, the information doesn't mean a whole lot, but walking, practicing the truth, practicing these things, putting what you know into practice. So is your life the evidence? of someone doing everything they can to live a holy life. If you were to be examined, if, I don't know, we hired a private investigator and said, all right, examine. Is your life the evidence of somebody who's doing everything they can to live a holy life? Or, what I've experienced a lot of, is your life the evidence of someone doing the least they can to feel like they still qualify as a Christian? We're actually just talking about this as elders this morning, the, uh, my terminology for a lot. Some people that attend church, I call them the Creasters because they come Christmas and Easter, and that's it. And I, I had a conversation with someone this past year, and they said something about their church. I'm like, oh, yeah, where do you go to church? And they're like, uh, um, and they literally asked their wife, where do we go to church? yeah, you don't go to that church. If you don't even know the name of the church, (laughs) you don't go to that church. You've been there. Uh, uh, There are places I've been, I can't really remember the names, but not somewhere I go every single week or I consider myself a part of. Uh, That's why I love, our vision statement starts with, we are a family where everyone can know, experience, and be empowered to ignite the love of Christ. That's who we are. We're not a place. If this building burnt down, my hope is it would mean absolutely nothing to us. We, whether we met in the gym or we met in a gymnasium somewhere, we are the church. Not this building. I love our building. I love our resources, but that's not who we are. And I know we still use the terminology, we're going to go to church. But we are the church. First John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another when we walk in the light, as He, that is God, is already in the light. God doesn't walk in darkness. See, there's this cool thing now where He doesn't have to, because what does He do? He indwells us, and He sends us to dark places. But we don't walk in the darkness of those places. We're sent to what? To take the light to the darkness. And he does that through us. I was, again, just reminiscing with somebody about how I was in a conversation with a group of believers who were uh, getting down on somebody because he had, like a, he had a bar ministry. And if you know me, you know I'm soft-spoken. I don't normally give my opinion. Uh, you also know that's not true at all. Uh, so I maybe. Got a little heated and let them know how much I disagreed with their viewpoint that, uh, that they were patting themselves on the back for never going to dark places. Man, I, that, that's something that it drives me nuts about uh, when we as Christians will say, like, oh, I've never been to this place that has unsaved people. Because that's how I hear it when they say, well, I've never, I've never stepped foot in a bar. I've never stepped foot in this place or that place. It's like, man, okay that's not a mark of of anything positive. I mean, how would you like it if missionaries would say like, I've never stepped foot in a country that's never heard of Jesus. I always go to places where everybody already knows about Jesus. Nobody wants that. We want international workers. We want missionaries. It's one of the things I love about the Alliance is we send our people to places uh, the majority of our resources and people are in countries where it's illegal to be there as a believer and to proselytize or to talk about Jesus. I love that. That, To me, that's awesome. Like We intentionally go to dark places. We're not just gonna send the majority of our people to places that they could walk down the street and buy a Bible. We send people to places where it would be illegal to own one. That's where we need to be. We need to go to dark places. We are the light. And when we walk with him, we walk in the light. And when we all walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That means that we don't accept a certain level of darkness. I think too often we come up with an acceptable level of darkness in our lives. Well, it's okay to watch that. It's okay to be a part of that. It's okay to have that sin in my life. Like I do a lot of good stuff so I can allow just this little bit of darkness in my life. Remember that John clarifies there is no darkness at all in God. And John isn't talking about momentary steps into the light. He's not talking about being a fence sitter where we step into the light on Sundays and we step back into the darkness. We step into the light on Wednesdays and for Bible study and we step back into the darkness. It's like That's not what John's talking about. He's talking about a life that walks in the light, that doesn't dabble in it, that doesn't just step in from time to time. This is how we know that we are believers, if our desire is to constantly walk in the light, again, this is what I love about Romans because it, it doesn't, Paul is so honest. He's like, man, I don't do what I want to do and I, I do the things I don't want to do, but he talks about his desire. His desire is to walk in the light. That's the mark of a believer. If we're constantly dealing with the thought of how much darkness we can fit into our lives and still be considered a Christian, then we probably don't have a relationship with Jesus. We're just trying to fit into the crowd. We're just trying to fit into the Christian box and say, well, how much can I get away with and still be that? How much can I get away with and still be there and be considered part of that group? And if you have a relationship with Jesus, you want to walk in the light. And it bothers you when you don't, when darkness wins, when, it, when you feel that you have stepped into darkness. Verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. While John acknowledges that we must walk in the light like God is, he also recognizes that we are all going to get it wrong in our life. We would all do well to be more honest with our faults with one another and stop trying to act like we've got it all together. Man, every single person walked in here this morning with stuff. Some of us, we got in a fight with our spouse before we even got here. We yelled at our kids, we got angry, we did something, we yelled at somebody driving, we got you know something. We've all got stuff, we're all messed up. And so let's not when we gather try to be like, oh, praise the Lord, everything's perfect in my life, it's wonderful. And we get you know, we smile when we walk into church and we don't let people know that there's like ugliness going on in our life, and that's not what it's that's not what this is about. Being the church means we got to be honest with one another. And that doesn't mean that we broadcast our sin all over the place. But there should be people here in this room, in our church family, that we are comfortable having conversations with. And one of the truths that you'll find as you walk with Jesus is the longer we walk in the light and the more our sin is illuminated to us. When I was part of the uh, Morgantown church, We did a little survey we sent out, um, and it was like basically rating yourself 1 to 10 as a believer. And almost 100% of it, you could tell who had walked with Jesus longer because they kept marking themselves lower and lower and lower on that list. And the newer believers were like, man, I'm like a 9. Okay, give it a couple years. Let that light really illuminate the things. You ever walk in, like, like you just turn the light on, and it's like, man, you can't barely see, and you, but then the longer the light's there, the more that start, you know, stuff starts to come out, and the more you can see. That's like living like a Christian. And the longer that light shines, the more stuff we notice, the more things that get brought out, the more the Holy Spirit illuminates to us. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you have a brother or a sister in Christ that you can go to at any time for confession? Now you can call up and say like, man, I blew it. And you can just be honest, like gut level honesty with. You don't have to sugarcoat things. You don't have to spend the first five minutes of the conversation like building yourself up or making excuses for it. But you can just call up and be like, man, I blew it. I was rude to my wife. I yelled at my kids. I got angry. Whatever it was, that you have that person, at least one person, that you can just confess that to. Someone who knows all the dirt in your life and still accepts you as you are. Man, that, that person, if you have one, that is a treasure to have somebody. Because, and, and my, my guess is not many of us do. Not many of us have that. And that, the enemy's winning in that. Because there's so much power in that. Having somebody who you know can pray for you for who you are. And like, what's actually going on in your life? Someone who, who isn't, doesn't have this sugar-coated idea of you, but knows like, man, he's almost as messed up as I am. And they still pray for you, and they still love you, and they still want to spend time with you, and they, and they still acknowledge that there's Christ walking, You know that you're in this, on this journey toward Jesus. If you don't have that, get it. Find it. Go after that. Seek that in someone. Because as the Bible mentions multiple times in the New Testament, multiple times mentions the power of confession. I think confession is a lost practice of the Christian faith. We, some of us, have Roman Catholic backgrounds or some type of Catholic background, and so maybe we have this, this false impression of what confession is, and so we, we, want, we go the other way on it. We're like, oh yeah, I was a part of that whole system. I'm not doing that anymore. And we think there's no power in confession, but yeah, the way they do, it's wrong. You don't need to confess anything to a priest and you don't even know them. But having a brother or sister in Christ that, that loves you, that can pray for you, that you can be honest about your sin and your struggles, man, that, there is so much power to that. I mean, John is clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. See, it's so easy to think, oh, this is just talking about between me and God, right? John doesn't say that. If we confess our sins, James is clear, confess our sins one to another. He makes it even clearer. But there's this power of confession. Too many of us, we think that Jesus has to be our only confidant, that we can just be honest with him. Because then we don't have to be true and real and raw with somebody. We don't have to let out the ugliness to somebody and hope and think they're going to judge us. Listen, if you find the right people, they they will open up too and it'll become this beautiful relationship where you can be like, man, I thought I was the only person that's messed up and we're messed up together and we, now we can pray for each other and, and we can be honest with each other and we can call each other when we're struggling and there's so much power there in that. See, when we make a regular habit of confession, the Lord has the opportunity not just to forgive us, of course he's gonna do that, but notice what this says, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever walked with your sin for a period of time? You've had this thing in your life and then you finally break down and confess it. Have you felt that feeling that I'm talking about? I mean, unless you've done it, you, just, you don't know what I'm talking about maybe. But you finally confess it. Doesn't it resonate with this? You feel cleansed. You feel clean. You feel like there was a, there was a weight that was on you and now you're lighter Because you've confessed that. That's the power of confession. The cleansing power of confession. Forgiveness is awesome. And when we, especially, definitely be confessing your sins to God. And that forgiveness can happen. But I I believe there's, this cleansing power comes when we can confess it to one another. And we can be honest with people here. And they can then begin to pray for us. Because to me, that, that's a huge part. If, if all you're doing is confessing your sin, that, that's, that's okay. But man, having that person as your prayer partner now, that you can pray for each other because you actually know what's going on. And there's, there's no like, uh, so often, especially with guys I've talked to, it's like we constantly walk around with this like if they only knew mentality. If they only knew how messed up I was. If they only knew the sins that are, if you have somebody that knows all that, the enemy loses that power of if they only knew. Because that person does know, and they still acknowledge the things that Christ is doing in your life, and you realize, man, this is a journey. This is a battle, and having people on my side is worth it. The last verse in chapter uh, 1 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The only way to think that we have not sinned is to not know the true article of holiness. See, it's similar, like, if you've ever had, a, like, a fake counterfeit uh, bill, it might look really genuine until you put it up next to the, the genuine article, to a real dollar, and you're like, oh, wow, okay. You play that game you used to play as kids, it's like, see what the, where the differences are and circle all the differences between the two images. When you have the real one, it's so much easier. If you ever had one of those books, what were those books called, Scholastic or... Highlights, there we go. Someone's, someone's tracking with me. If you only saw one picture, it'd be impossible to tell what the, where the differences were. You need the other one. You need to be able to look at the two and compare. So the only way for us to think like, well, I'm doing pretty good, I haven't sinned, we have to get pretty far from Jesus to get to a place where we feel like we're not, no longer a sinner. The closer we get to him, oh, man. If you were able to take those two images in the highlights magazine and put them on top of each other, Man, it'd be so easy to see the differences. It'd be so much easier to be able to identify where the differences were. So the closer we get to Jesus, we don't feel holier and self-righteous. That's not what comes out of that. We get closer to him, we feel like, man, I desperately need him. And the holiness we feel is not our own, but his, that he bestows upon us. And it's this beautiful thing that happens. If the word of God is in us, it makes it plain to us that we are all sinners and we all fail to honor God at all times. The more of, the, of his word that is in us, the more aware of our brokenness we are and the more desperately we cling to him. So what can we walk away with from chapter one? I believe the clearest part of this message is walk in the light. Don't just tiptoe in it. Don't think that you can have one foot in the light and one foot in the darkness, that like, oh, I can still celebrate the things of the world and the evilness of this world and still dabble in the the evil stuff of this world, but then I, I go to church. I read my Bible, so I'm good. Temporary situational steps into the light are not enough. We cannot seek to compartmentalize our lives and our spiritual life and then expect to feel fulfilled in Christ if you're constantly feeling unfulfilled in your Christian walk, if you're constantly wrestling with like, oh, I know I should do more for Jesus. Oh, I know I should walk closer with him. I just can't. There's a light problem. There's something wrong there. We, again, we were in our, our conversation with the elders. One of the elders pointed out, he's talking to somebody and they said, I just don't have time for church. And that's somebody who hasn't really experienced Jesus. I don't have time not to spend with Jesus. I, my life's, I got too many things going on. I got two kids. I got a church that, that uh, I'm seeking to, to honor God with. I, there's all these relationships I have, people that, that look to me to help point them to Jesus. I, I can't not spend time with him. I can't afford not to. And I hope we all see our lives like that. It's not just the life of, of a pastor. That's the life of every single believer. You know, I've said it a thousand times, there is no such thing as pastors being full-time ministry people. Everybody's a full-time minister, I just get to do mine with the title pastor. That's all. You get to do yours with the title of whatever it is. Whatever your job is, whatever your role is, whatever, your, whatever hat you're wearing, that's your full-time ministry role. You get to be Jesus everywhere you go. You're constantly telling people about him. You're constantly dealing with people, hopefully, who don't know Jesus, and you're going to places where the light is necessary. That's full-time ministry. We're all engaged in that. What would happen to a plant if we only put it out in the sun for two hours on a Sunday and the rest of the time it got shut up inside, it'll continue to wither and die. Two hours of light's just not enough. Our spiritual lives are very similar in that what areas of your life need more light? What areas have, have you tried to keep Jesus away from? What aspects of your life Have you tried to keep Jesus from getting his hands on? Because you're just not sure what will happen if you give it all over to him. And the last question I have for us this morning is what are you going to do about it this week? Again, knowledge without practice is useless. So whatever I've said this morning, whatever the Spirit has resonated in you about, if you're not going to do anything about it. You kind of wasted your time. Just hearing about Jesus isn't enough. The demons know and and they tremble before him because they don't put into practice what they know. But we are called to do that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this letter of John, this first chapter, God, that encourages us to walk in the light. Lord, I pray this week, each and every person here, we would walk in the light like we've never walked before. That we would sprint toward you, Jesus, this week. That we would not allow a certain level of evil into our homes, into our lives, through the media that we Consume this week through the uh, books that we consume, through the conversations that we have, that we wouldn't allow an acceptable level of darkness, but instead, Lord, we would walk in the light. And Lord, I pray for some of us that we would begin to entertain the idea that you might be sending us to dark places with the light, places that we've avoided in the past, places that we've stayed away from because the people there don't know you. And you would challenge us to take the light to dark places because that will make it so clear to us and so evident how much we desperately need you. Lord, I pray that we would all draw closer to you this week, that we would accept this truth not just as as ideas but as practice for daily living and we would walk with you this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, have a great week.